Section 13 of Sunbeams by George W. Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sultan Drowns Wives A dispatch from Constantinople says the Sultan drowned four of his wives one day last week in the Bosphorus for intriguing with a young Turk party. We don't know exactly what intriguing with a young Turk party is, but probably it is a good deal like flirting here in the States. When an old man's wife here in this country gets to intriguing with some young American party, the old man does not have any such snap as the sultan does. He has to grin and bear it, and scold, and eventually get a gun and go gunning for the young American party, and as often as not the young party gets the drop on the old man, kills him, gets off on the ground of self-defense, and goes on intriguing as though nothing had happened. But the sultan does not have to worry about these little matters. He rounds up a few hundred wives and looks at them, and if one of them has her lips chapped as though she had been intriguing, he gives her a look that cuts a hole in her, and if she blushes he has her stand aside, and when he gets enough for a fair-sized boatload he orders a trusty eunuch to load them in a skiff, coil some lead pipe around them, run the boat out of his private chapel into the stream, and throw them overboard, and all that there is to show for it is some bubbles on the water, which soon disappear, and then the eunuchs dive for the lead pipe and sell it for junk. Most people will complain and make sarcastic remarks about a sultan that has the power and takes pleasure in drowning his wives. But they should remember that he has to maintain discipline in his domestic army, or he would not be the commander. How many men living in other states than Wisconsin have seen the time they would like to drown one wife because she intrigued? But it being unlawful to do so, he has had to live with her until some epidemic came. The sultan is probably a bad man, Nobody seems to doubt that, but who wouldn't be with a thousand or fifteen hundred wives with different dispositions, and a thousand young Turks around the house making eyes at them, and taking them out boat riding and playing lawn tennis? No husband can watch fifteen hundred wives the way they ought to be watched. No husband can have more than a calling acquaintance with so many wives, and when he is engaged in the affairs of state, it is not strange that these young devils get to flirting with them. Probably the only way to keep peace in the family is to drown a few wives every day, and it seems as though more charity should be shown to the sultan. He certainly has troubles of his own, and if drowning is the method of relieving him, it shows an advancement in the civilization of Turkey, as in former years they used to kill them with a scimitar and get blood on the carpet. There is nothing much better than water if used in moderation. How Uncle Charlie Made an Apple Pie A year or two ago at a shooting club in this state, there were half a dozen of the best fellows in the world putting in a week with the ducks, doing their own cooking, and having more fun with each other than ever was enjoyed by a party anywhere else on earth. There was the professor, who is authority on everything that grows or swims or flies, 
the landlord, who knows how everything ought to be cooked, but couldn't boil water alone without scorching it, the veteran, who has a wooden leg that he can kick with or walk a match with and keep up with the boys in any sport there is going, the editor, who will praise anybody's cooking as long as he does not have to do anything but wipe the dishes, and who will sit up till after midnight drinking strong coffee and eating sinkers, and then tells in the morning about being broke of his rest by ducks quacking out in the lake all night. The doctor, who takes along no medicine except a pious example and a package of sedlitz powders, and the two uncles, Uncle John, who can make a johnny cake with his eyes shut that will make the consumer glad he is alive, and Uncle Charlie, who has traveled the world over and can tell about it when the boys get him started. The crowd were sitting around on the lawn one afternoon in early autumn, watching the apples fall off the trees in the orchard and speculating on who should cook supper and what it should be, when Uncle Charlie came along with a pan of apples and said, Boys, I am going to make an apple pie for supper. If lightning had struck the smokehouse, the consternation and astonishment could not have been greater. They had eaten everything that had been furnished them by the amateur cooks and had not kicked, but this seemed to be too much. Of course they wanted pie, but whether Uncle Charlie was equal to making an apple pie was unknown. But they knew that if he started out to make a pie, he would make one, and they would have to eat it, as he was a sensitive man who would not like to see his pie untouched. The professor was appointed to go in the kitchen and see if Uncle Charlie was really bent on committing apple pie, with instructions to reason with him and try to dissuade him from so hellish an act. The professor soon returned with the sad news that Uncle Charlie had got an apron on and was already butchering the apples and could not be reasoned with. Some thought they had arrived at a point in the history of the club where an amateur apple pie would shake the organization to its foundation, and it was decided that all should go in the kitchen and watch the proceedings and give Uncle Charlie the benefit of any advice they might think of and render him a helping hand. They found him with a pan of flour and a lot of butter, lard, baking powder, eggs, milk, and a rolling pin, and a board to roll the crust out on. Flour was scattered all over the table. He had dropped an egg on the floor and tried to sweep it out of the door with a broom, and he had baking powder in his hair. The watchers sat around the room as solemn as though they were bearers at a funeral, and one suggested that Uncle Charlie wash his hands before he went any further, which he finally consented to do in the interest of harmony. Then he mixed the dough in the pan and began to try to roll it out, but it seemed to bound like a rubber ball, and he had difficulty in flattening it out. The doctor said that if Uncle Charlie would sit on it a little while, it would take the wind out of it, and the landlord suggested that it be run through a clothes wringer. The dough stuck to the rolling pin and curled up like a sled runner, and Uncle John told him to grease the rolling pin, and he said maybe that would be a good idea, and he greased it. The professor said he liked a pie with a nice flaky crust, and the veteran said he would probably get it if Uncle Charlie ever got the wind 
pudding scraped off the rolling pin, and suggested pulling it off with a corkscrew. The boys finally all got up and stood around the table and gave advice. The veteran said he would grab hold of one end of the dough and stretch it out, and when it come off the rolling pin, all could take hold of an edge of it and stretch it out. And then Uncle Charlie could take a flat iron and maul it down flat, and they could get it into the bottom of the pie plate and hold it till the instigator of the pie got the apples on, and then it could not get away, and he could take his time shingling the roof of it with another crust. Uncle Charlie finally got the dough rolled out so it wasn't more than a couple of inches thick, and he said it beat all how contrary that dough was. He said he never exactly made a pie himself, but he had seen it done so many times he knew he could make one, but he was sure the flour was bad. The doctor suggested that he bake the crust separate and let each one put in the apples to his taste when it came to the table. But Uncle Charlie said that that would be a shortcake and not a pie, and when he started in to make a pie he didn't make shortcake. The doctor suggested that he put some quinine pills in the apples, or something that would be a preventative against any epidemic. But Uncle Charlie kept on rolling, and said if anybody didn't like his pie, they could let it alone. Finally, he got the crust down to an inch thick, and put it in the pie tin, and ironed it down with a flat iron, and put the apples in, and after a while, he got an upper crust, that looked like a section of bed quilt lined with cotton, and plastered it on top of the apples, and it was ready for the oven. Uncle John wanted to know if he was not going to scallop the edge of the crust, but Uncle Charlie said this was only an everyday pie, and he should not scallop the edges, but if they were having company, he would put on a little style with his pie. The fire had gone out, but the pie was got into the oven, and a roaring fire was built, and a sigh of relief was noticed when the pie was out of sight. Uncle Charlie had an air of a conqueror as he began to clean up the room, and he said, You fellows that cook meat and potatoes and eggs are just common dubs, and don't class with a pastry cook. The landlord got the boys out on the lawn and told them that that was going to be the condemnest pie that ever was, and he would have to be excused from eating any of it, for his stomach was not as strong as it used to be. Besides, he had seen the ashes off Uncle Charlie's pipe sift into the apples. The other boys said the landlord would have to eat his share of the pie or leave camp, and that when men were out together, each should stand his share of suffering and hardships. It was then decided that all should drink a strong whiskey toddy to brace them up for the ordeal, and so they filled their glasses and drank to the toast, Here's to Uncle Charlie's pie, and may the Lord have mercy on us. The editor got on his wheel and said that he was going for a ride, but the boys could see that he had a scheme for being absent when the critical time came, and he was arrested and his wheel locked up until the ordeal was over. Each of the boys opened the oven occasionally to see how the pie was coming on. In one moment it would be swelled up to fill half the oven and seemed to be boiling and steaming, and then again it would seem to be sinking down into the bottom of the tin. The dinner was cooked, 
and all sat down to the table, Uncle Charlie keeping watch of his pie, and when the proper time came he took it out of the oven with the tongs and dropped it on the table with a dull thud, and the boys looked at it. The pie had simmered down about even with a plate, and the top crust looked like building paper with great warts on. The professor said if Uncle Charlie would run a lawnmower over the top and cut off the warts, it would help the looks of the pie. But he said, you never mind the warts. It was decided that the doctor should perform the operation of cutting the pie. But he said he had no instruments with him. But the landlord handed him a butcher's knife, and he attempted to carve the crust but the knife would make no impression on the roof of the pie. "'What's the matter with a hatchet?' said the editor, as he pounded on the crust with the head of a hatchet, which bounded off. And then he suggested that the pie would be a good backstop for a baseball field. The doctor, who had performed many an operation, said this was the toughest proposition he had ever gone up against, and he handed the pie to the man who made it and said he gave up. Uncle Charlie took it over to his place on the table and said it was easy enough to cut a pie if he knew how, and he slipped a case knife under the upper crust and pried off a little piece, which broke with a snap, flew across the table, and struck the veteran under the eye, and he said, "'What are you throwing pieces of slate at me for? You will put a man's eye out if you are not careful.' The editor said he had a suggestion to make though he did not care to mix in anybody else's pie, he suggested that they turn the pie over on its face and take a can opener and cut through the plate and bottom crust and fish out some of the apples with a cleaning rod with a wormer on. Uncle Charlie said he knew what was the matter. It was because the pie was too hot. He said, you take that pie and let it get cold and you can do anything with it. But he said you would have to work it from the top and sink a shaft down the center, as he now remembered that he had not greased the plate, and it would never come off the pie tin. So they set the pie away in the pantry, and it got cold and seemed harder each day, and the boys would go into the pantry occasionally all the fall and take off their hats and pay their respects to Uncle Charlie's pie. Occasionally they would bring it out when unexpected company arrived, and asked them if they would try a piece of the apple pie. And when a guest tried to cut out a piece, the boys would all look out the window. And after the guest had dulled his knife, and said he guessed he didn't care for any pie, someone would hand him a whetstone. But no one ever got a mouthful of the pie. It was left out where the dog could get it, but it was safe. As the snow began to fall, and the season was closing, one night the boys solemnly took the pie out on to the Indian mound near the clubhouse and buried it with the pie tin for a hermetically sealed coffin and placed a board at the head of the grave on which was the inscription, Here lies buried Uncle Charlie's apple pie. We shall never see its like again. And now when somebody at the club suggests that they have pie for dinner, all hold up their hands in horror and say, Never more, never more. End of section 13. Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina.